It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined, as always, by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. How's it going, Dan? Did you have a nice Halloween? Um, I got zero trick-or-treaters. How many trick-or-treaters did you get? Oh, we went through like six or eight bags of candy. It was aggressive here in Burbank. And then we were lucky enough to go across the street where uh, our neighbors build this amazing little set. It looks like a cemetery. And we actually got to meet our neighbors for the first time, despite being here since the week before the pandemic started. So, uh, and then uh, strangely enough, one of them was actually recognized my voice and said, do you host a podcast about television? So shout out to my neighbors. Uh, that was very, very cool. Um, and also, I didn't really know how to respond to that. You know, we're a fan out in the wild. It's first time for everything. <laughs> okay. The correct response to that was, yes, I do do a podcast. Well, I mean, that was obviously my response, okay. but like, it, it, I, it that doesn't like, seem like a trick to me. I, I, don't I think. thanked him. I, I thanked him for being a friend of the five, and, uh, and he's like, "You say that on the show," and I'm just like, "Oh my god, this is so cool." I don't know. You don't want to give. It was really out, cool. It was really nice. You don't want to give out friend of the five just willy nilly. I mean, acquaintance of the five in the sphere of the five. Got to got to keep got to keep friend special. Yes, Dan. You'll be the barometer of the friend of the five label from from henceforth. No, no, your neighbor could absolutely be. A, I don't. I don't want to take your neighbor out of the running to be a friend of the five. I, I'm just. I'm just saying, not everyone can be a friend of the five. I don't have that many friends, Leslie. <laughs> yes, you do. Okay, fine. Maybe the podcast doesn't have any that many friends. I think the podcast has more friends than I do. So you know, I think there's more than we realize. But which it's weird because you know we you know, record this from home still. So it's, it's very strange. Well, anyway. Also, you were you were casually discussing the executive carousel at the time. So, you know, how could anyone not have recognized your voice? That's just my guess. No, I was definitely not talking about the executive carousel. We were talking about how, how our dog was uh, dressed as a pickle uh, and the side <laughs> of her costume said she's kind of a big dill. And then uh, someone else's dog was dressed as as a pumpkin. So it was like, oh, look, we've got garden vegetables. Excellent. Happy Halloween, everyone. Happy Halloween. <laughs> Four days later. Yeah, you know, it's it's always the Halloween state of mind. Yes. Well, this is episode 192. Hard to believe, Dan. 192. We're getting close to that big number 200. I don't know what we're going to do yet, but uh, I do know what we're going to do in this episode, and it's going to start with headlines. Number one. Leading off the week's top headlines, Hannibal and Pushing Daisy's grad Brian Fuller has landed a straight-to-series order for Friday the 13th prequel series Crystal Lake at Peacock. Peacock, go Peacock. And we'll talk about more on that in, in just a minute. But Dan, you excited? I know you're a big Hannibal fan and, and a big Brian Fuller fan, but you looking forward to this one? No, no, I'm I am generally pro Brian Fuller. I, I think it is well established that uh, and I'm sure he would have no problems acknowledging it, that Brian Fuller is often attached to things that sometimes simply don't happen. And so or this happen without him. 
or happen without him. And this one seems Star Trek like Discovery, it's Discovery, American Gods, uh, Interview with a Vampire. Like, oh God, I forgot that he had anything to do with that too. Yeah. Uh, look, he he is an extremely talented person, and he's very very good with uh, making success out of things that seem unlikely on the surface to work, whether it's Hannibal or. Even the version of of the monsters that they tried doing with him at Mockingbird at, Lane at NBC yeah, at, at NBC was, you know, it it had a lot of potential. It it was not a perfect uh, piece of television by any stretch of the imagination, but it absolutely seemed like it might as well have been a thing that could have worked. So yeah, I I am generally pro Brian Fuller, certainly going back to Wonderfalls, etc. So uh, yeah, so yeah, count another, me in on Brian Fuller. Another great one and done. Anyway, continuing along, speaking of things that aren't one and done, but were one and done, then turned out to be three and done. Uh, two seasons after Adult Swim rescued Lisa Hannawalt's animated comedy, Toucan Birdie, after it was canceled at Netflix after one season, the Warner Brothers Discovery Back Network has unfortunately axed the animated series, which starred Tiffany Haddish and Ali Wong. Hannah Walt has said that she hopes to give the series its proper ending, quote unquote, sometime. Um, I'm happy that that one at least got two additional seasons. It was it was one that Netflix treated very, very poorly. And as to whether Adult Swim treated it better, well, they gave it two additional seasons. So take it where you can. In other cancellation news, Fate, the Winx, Winx, whatever it is, I know it exists, the Winx saga will not return to Netflix after two seasons, and Stars has axed Becoming Elizabeth after one run. Yeah. Um, in news that's going to be seen as a cancellation, because it basically It should be is. seen as a cancellation. Yeah. <laughs> CBS has sent its ratings challenge dating series The Real Love Boat to Paramount+. Plus. I came up with about 15 different nautical puns in a tweet last week. I was very proud of that. It may have been the best thing I wrote last week, and yes, that's a little bit bleak. Uh, it will Let's hear be. him. Give me a couple. No, no, it's, uh, it's on, all on Twitter. On, Everyone should just go on Twitter. <sighs> it's all there. It's all there. And the episodes will now air on Paramount Plus, which is already where I watch episodes of Survivor and Amazing Race and gives CBS the chance to kind of let episodes exist while also burning them off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some people were like, oh, it's getting an upgrade. It's going to Param Paramount Plus. That is 100% not the case in this instance. This is a show that struggled to find an audience. And CBS said, well, we're going to have to give our advertisers make goods because the show is not rating at all. So they move it to Paramount Plus where it can they can burn off the episodes. And instead of burning them off on like a Saturday or another time during the year, they can actually put something else on that rates there. So it's I guess it's a win-win, lose-lose situation. I don't know. But either way, see it as a cancellation and not an upgrade. Yeah, there's, I don't really see how it would be viably a upgrade, but you I mean, never, some, there, no. were, there were some outlets that positioned this as at, like it wasn't a cancellation. And I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. This is this show has is not working. And the idea of like, oh, it's going to this one. It's like you can you can spin it however you want if you work in PR and congratulations to those who did. But as journalists, as reporters, it's our job to kind of see through all, all of the spin. So. This is a cancellation. Anyway, we were just chatting about stars. The premium cable network this week has given an early season two renewal to its dangerous liaison adaptation ahead of its debut. 
And in other renewals, Netflix has picked up a sophomore run of Neil Gaiman's The Sandman drama, but it's asking us to not, the streamer's asking us to not call it a season two. So I don't know. We'll see what happens with this one. And, you know, because much like, uh, like Brian Fuller, Neil Gaiman does have a, a somewhat rather checkered history in terms of, uh, what he's able to do and, and how, how well it goes behind the scenes. Wait, so what are we supposed to be calling it instead of a season two? More episodes of The Sandman. <laughs> this is this is also incidentally... If you're ordering more episodes of a series, but you don't want it to be called a second season, what is it called, Dan? A continuation, ongoing. Uh, there was a whole semantic thing that Apple TV Plus tried to do with Slow Horses also, where they basically ordered two seasons, but they weren't two seasons. So they insisted that the first season, which already premiered the first six episodes was the first season. And then it would continue with additional episodes based on a different book. But now they've just been promoting it as season two. So, I mean, you know, a lot of cable networks used to do this back in the day where it was like season one, a and season one B. And that was a way to avoid giving cast and crew raises that are baked into contracts that come with, with renewals. And it was a way to keep costs down. I think, what was that that Netflix show, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina did that, you know, where it was like, oh, it's 20 episodes per season. But every other show on Netflix is 10 or The Ranch would be 20 episodes and, you know, you'd be split into two. So they're basically airing it as if it's different season, but seasons, but they're calling it one season because they're trying to keep the, the price point on the, on the show down. So whatever. It's still a renewal. <laughs> mm, semantics. Mm, semantics. In casting news that had my Twitter feed burning up all weekend, Liam Hemsworth is going to be replacing Henry Cavill as the lead in Netflix's The Witcher, which has been renewed for its fourth season. There was a lot of discussion about whether that was a huge or very small hunkiness downgrade. I think the concession I saw seemed to be that it was a fairly large downgrade of hunkiness uh, with everyone's second or possibly third, depending on how you feel about Westworld, favorite uh, Hemsworth. Uh, do, do we know anything at all about this, or is this just a, a thing that happened? <laughs> I'm guessing, based on how much we know that Henry Cavill loves the source material for The Witcher and really wanted to desperately play that character, that this is related to his schedule. I mean, he did just sign on to reprise his role as Superman, so guessing there's a, a a big difference between how much goes into how much how much work and the timing that it takes to do a genre show like the witcher and how much it takes to do superman and it's probably not something you can do you know on a hiatus from one or the other so here and he are. may just have been the, in the mood to skip arm day more frequently <laughs> who can blame him and you know wrapping up we talked at the st at the start of, of headlines about uh, Peacock picking up a Crystal Lake show based on Friday the 13th. And, you know, last week I did go pretty hard uh, on Peacock. And, you know, for good reason. They're still a mess. But let's score one in the victory column here for Peacock. In the latest chess move in the streaming wars, Peacock, in a deal with Hallmark, is now the exclusive streaming home for all of Hallmark's holiday programming. As I wrote on Twitter, where you can find me at at Snootit. What's a better use of funds, making original holiday programming or getting all of Hallmark's seasonal content? Well, to me, the answer is easy. But is it really? Yeah. <laughs> Why? Because you're getting, like, 
Look at how many people watch Hallmark during the holidays, right? You know, you can go back and listen to our, our not so great interview for Bill Abbott. I mean, it was a great interview for us. Didn't turn out so well for him. But the numbers that Hallmark is able to pull is incredible. And we know that Peacock needs a reason to get people to come in the door. So you can either spend a few million bucks on making, you know, a, a cheaper holiday streaming movie and dump it on a service that no one's really watching that hasn't really broken through yet. Or you can sit here and say, hey, if you've cut the cord and you don't have Hallmark, we have all of it. Come to Peacock or whatever we are a month. To me, it's a smart, a very, my, very smart decision. My only question is if it becomes a real audience or if it becomes a borrowed audience. And and that just is is the it's, same question. Oh, it's a rented audience for sure. So so is that a long-term solution? Like in the short term, do I think it absolutely will give people who are curious a place to go at the holiday season and all of that? You know, is there an audience? Of course there is. Absolutely, of course. I just don't know if this becomes more in the vein of, okay, so this is now another kind of incompatible thing that Peacock has. So now people will go to Peacock for Hallmark programming, for repeats of Yellowstone, and is that really sustainable as a Peacock brand? That is that is my only no, reason for quibbling. absolutely not. But the hope is you get these people in through the door, you get them to sign up, you get them to watch all the Hallmark stuff, and then hopefully you can find a way to promote the other things that are working over there or that are kind of no-brainers that you want people to keep paying for the service after they're done with the Hallmark content, right? So, hey, by the way, we've got every single episode of Saturday Night Live. We've got The Office. I mean, we've got some originals that we canceled, that, but some of them are really, really good and some of them don't end at all. You know, we've had some, new, is, some if, new David E. Kelly show that I can't remember the title of. Uh, you the know, Calling, we've the got, calling we've got, I think, formerly The Missing. <laughs> and we've got 17,000 million hours of Dick Wolf content. Like, there's enough there, plus 30 Rock, all the must-see TV or some of the must-see TV stuff. But, like, there's enough there in terms of library that could be of interest to people who are tuning in to Hallmark to keep them there. But either way, you're getting people in the door if people forget to, to cancel their subscription, they forget or you, you count it for another quarter or it boosts their Q4 numbers, whatever the case, it gets people in the door and that's 100% what they need. It's what they need, but at this point in the service's life, is is that a actual life raft or is it just an oar that they're going to be able to float on for another couple minutes before a giant wave comes and drowns them? That's my, that is my only question. I mean, it's, it's both. Okay, well, we'll we'll see. It's, it's definitely not a bad thing. I'm I'm not in any way trying to claim that you know getting the Hallmark Library is a negative thing. Clearly, that is this will be good business and good value for Peacock. I just don't know if it's long term, but no. you know, not but unless suddenly like Valentine Hallmark Valentine's Day com content becomes like a thing that Peacock has all year round. And I mean, I don't know how well that, that stuff does for Hallmark, but. I do know that their that their holiday business is huge. So anyway, moving on. Up second. Number two. Speaking of networks slash services slash whatever that we've been hard on in recent weeks, we've we've talked a little bit about the changes at the CW after the Nexstar acquisition. And uh, we talked about Mark Pedowitz a couple of weeks ago, et cetera. And we're beginning to get a little bit more of a of a sense of how things are going to look in the next R era. So what did we learn this week, Leslie? So what we already know is Nexstar took f control of the CW the beginning of October, and it's been an eventful month for them. 
There's been a lot of layoffs. Basically, Pedowitz was first to go. His top lieutenants followed. What we're seeing now, including finance and marketing executives who have been there for decades, and what we're seeing this week is new CW president, Dennis Miller, no, not the comedian, has installed former pop TV president Brad Schwartz as president of entertainment at the CW. So why is this notable? Well, first, we know that Miller does not have strong ties to the creative community. Schwartz, for his part, does. He's been consulting for the CW for a while, and he does have some creative uh, connections. You know, you look back at Brad Schwartz's resume, and he's the executive who gets 100% of the credit for bringing Schitt's Creek to, to U.S. audiences. Obviously, that became an Emmy phenomenon, right? It, remember the year it swept every category in which it was nominated. And he used the success of that show to help build pop TV into a destination for originals, right? Remember, they rescued one day at a time after Netflix canceled it. Um, you know, he greenlit other shows that were embraced by critics like Florida Girls and Flack, the latter of which went to Amazon after uh, Viacom effectively pulled the plug on what Schwartz built. And when we look at what the future of the CW is, a lot of the stuff that I've been hearing was WGN America, which was bought by Nexstar and transformed into a completely different network with no scripted content. That was the benchmark of what to expect that uh, for the CW under Nexstar. Now, after talking with Schwartz, which I did an extensive interview with him this week after he was hired, and keep in mind, he doesn't start until November 7th. But what he's basically saying is it's fair to, to think of Pop TV as a case study for what the future of the CW will look like. So what does that mean? Well, to hear Schwartz tell it, he wants to continue to do originals, but they have to make money. So he has, he's used the terms like scrappy, right? You know, so when you look at what pop TV did, these were originals where some of them they owned and they were able to monetize, but these were not shows that had a, a licensing fee, you know, five, six, seven million dollars an episode. So the other piece of it is, a lot of when you look at what remains of the CW's US scripted originals roster, all of those shows are owned based on the the former CW's business model. They're owned by Warner Brothers and CBS. Those studios have already monetized the existing shows, the ones that remain. They already either have output deals as part of the old Netflix agreement or they're licensed to their own streamers, HBO Max and Paramount Plus. So the shows that are currently on the CW are not making any money for Nextstar. So that's not a good sign for them. So what we know this week is that, you know, they announced another show was going to be ending this year. Stargirl will end with its current third season, and it joins Nancy Drew, The Flash, and Riverdale is ending in the 22-23 season. Others are expected to follow. So Schwartz is definitely open to doing originals. We don't, he was noncommittal when, when responding to how many of the current roster would continue to, to stay on the network for next season in Nextstar's deal with Warner's and CBS Studios they agreed to carry 12 scripted shows this season but beyond that it's a giant question mark so what are these shows going to have to do in order to survive well they're going to have to get cheaper and they're going to have to be profitable and the network is going to have to be profitable so expect some changes so we've already been saying expect changes but this is the these are the most breadcrumbs that we've really gotten in terms of what to really 
anticipate. So he he's not saying that they're not going to do interesting and compelling shows. He just has to do you, they just have to do them on a budget. So and that that could be good news for the shows that are the new shows that debuted this year. There are three freshman shows. Those all have d- lower budgets than any of the CW's previous shows, even for first year things like Jane the Virgin and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. So the shows that are on this year, the the, the freshman trio are cheaper to produce. But the, again, despite the, the lower price tag on them, they already have output deals elsewhere. So it's a giant question mark of what we're, what the CW will look like next season. But we know that there are at least conversations going on about reducing licensing fees. And there's got to be some way to make these things profitable for next star. So that's what Schwartz is going to be charged with doing when he starts over there. It's a very good interview that you did with Brad Schwartz that people can read over at The Hollywood Reporter, of course. Thank you. And, you know, there were, again, more layoffs this week. And I do want to take an opportunity right now to pour one out for our good friend, verified friend of the five, Paul Hewitt, who headed up Corpcom at the CW and his day, his tenure with the network goes back to before it was even the CW, when it was still UPN. Uh, if you've heard our interviews with Mark Pedowitz on the show before, that's that's Hewitt's doing. Um, he was a staple at press events, at TCA, at Upfronts. He was a speechwriter for a lot of different execs, including Pedowitz. Like, I mean, he's truly one of the best in the biz. And his golf game, let me just tell you, is next level. But uh, we're pour- pouring one out for Paul, who was let go this week um, at the CW as, you know, the new regime puts its own people in place and cleans house. So the scripted execs are still there, but it's a good question for how much longer. We don't know what Schwartz is going to do or if they'll continue to develop. But the casting department is no longer, et cetera. So lots of changes continue over at the CW. Paul Hewitt, definitely good people. Unfortunately, you've now distracted me, though, with the idea of a verified friend of the five policy. <laughs> I know, I know. I distracted um, myself when which, I said that. Which has now got me thinking, hmm, who would pay $8 a month to be a verified friend of the five? I can't Didn't tell you. did you just describe the business model for Patreon? Uh, well, I was just going to. I was. I was going with Twitter, uh, but yes, uh, I promise you that being a verified friend of the five uh, would give you absolutely nothing. Uh, there would be no perks whatsoever. You would get to tell people that you were a verified friend of the five. But guess what? You can still tell people that. Uh, and fun story. Speaking of friends of the five, Brad Schwartz was previously featured on TV's top five. And you can go back and listen to our executive spotlight interview with him from way back in the before times, August 16th, 2019, in episode 34. Dan, we were such babies. And Schwartz spoke about the impact of Schitt's Creek on Pop TV and how he built on that on the show's success. So, of course, that's all moot now as Pop TV is was a casualty of the Viacom restructuring a few years ago and currently has no scripted originals or dedicated exec overseeing it. But it's a good interview and it kind of gives you an idea of what to expect from Schwartz. So you can two things to read. Well, two things to do. One, read my interview with Schwartz from this week. And two, go back and listen to our great interview with him from August 2019. Number three. Up third, Dan, I've already heard Mariah's Carey's All I Want for Christmas, so it must be November? Yep, it's that time of year. It's the November TV preview. Dan, I am old enough to remember that 
when the holidays rolled around, it was like a, t- a time of year for reporters and critics, especially critics, to kind of exhale because nobody would launch high-profile scripted originals around the holidays and everything was just repeats. Those days, of course, long gone. This month, not only are there gobs of holiday specials and movies and Hallmark things, but some of the biggest TV shows of the year in terms of critical interest and in terms of total viewers are arriving in November with stuff like The Crown and Yellowstone both returning this month. So Dan, I don't know how you want to do this, but we can just list a few, but uh, let's just hear your thoughts to start on what it's like. I mean, the transition from being kind of a sleepy time of year where you're just kind of watching, you know, the thing, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade and that's it. And there was no other premium content to consume long gone. But I mean, it's such a different landscape now. Well, I mean, November did back in the day used to be a sweeps period. That used to be a thing that used to matter. We used to talk a lot about sweeps. That used to be a, a real topic of conversation. Uh, we do not anymore. No, no that's this, where all those specials came from. This is, it's it's another busy and chaotic month, and it's a busy and chaotic month, as you say, with a lot of uh, big, big things. And part of why there are a lot of big things rolling out this month is because a lot of big things ended in October. So, you know, if you've listened to our past couple of weeks where we had our colleague Angie Hahn to talk about the ends of God, which ones would we talk about with her? We talked about Lord of the Rings and She-Hulk with Angie. And then we talked with Josh Wiggler about How's the Dragon. So yep, that would be our new season and review topic. So, yeah, so those would be those would be three of the biggest things on television in the past three to four months that ended last month. And Andor is the other kind of big thing that's continuing this month until towards the end of November. Uh, but no, it's a it's a big month. Lots of returning shows, lots of uh, lots of potential franchise shows, etc. So yeah, break break it down, and then we'll talk about what we're excited for. I'm going to break these down alphabetically by platform. So no special treatment here. Amazon's got the English and Mammals over at Apple. There's the new seasons of Mosquito Coast, Mythic Quest, and the new series Echo Three. Disney Plus has the Santa Clauses and Willow. What year is it, Dan? HBO Max has one of my favorite shows, The Sex Lives of College Girls. Over at Hulu, Fleischman is in trouble and welcome to Chippendales. Netflix has The Crown Wednesday, which you can go back and listen to our interview with the showrunners of that one from last week. Plus Blockbuster. Yep, you heard that right. A new show called Blockbuster coming out on Netflix. Plus the return of NBC Transfer Manifest. 1899, and then the final season of Dead to Me, another one of my favorites. Over at Paramount Plus, Criminal Minds Evolution returns in its new format. Peacock has The Capture, The Calling, and Pitch Perfect, Bumper in Berlin, which, yeah, there was a trailer for that one this week, Dan. I have some thoughts. And then over on broadcast, Lopez versus Lopez, that's on NBC. And Fox has the Dan Harmon animated comedy called Crapopolis, which is Really fun to say, Crapopolis, if you want to say it with me. Over on Basic Cable, Paramount Network has Yellowstone and Tulsa King with Sylvester Stallone. And on Premium Cable, it's already been renewed, Stars has Dangerous Liaison, and Showtime has The L Word, Generation Q. So lots of new, lots of returning, and lots of tentpoles. It's it's mostly just a lot. Uh, and guess what? That's the way it is. That's the way it is every week. Uh, That's just the way it is. What's Feel free to sing. Who sang that song again? 
I am not you. You can you can Google it. Uh, but yes, definitely. A couple of people on Twitter were noticing last week's Critics Corner segment was longer than normal, and I get the feeling that several of the upcoming weeks will be as well. Okay, you got Bruce the Hornsby and the range. Bruce Hornsby. Why did I not? Anyway, <laughs> apologies to Bruce Hornsby for not yes. remembering, and apologies for butchering it. You you didn't really get deep into it. I don't think anyone is is going to be offended. I don't think. Uh, no. So yeah, that that that's a lot of stuff, and it's a lot of stuff with with a lot of very big names. You mentioned Tulsa King with Sylvester Stallone. So you know, ooh, Sylvester Stallone doing TV, which let's be real, everyone does TV, but still, it's it's not unnotable. Uh, along the same lines, the English on Amazon is Emily Blunt. You might not necessarily have known that from whether you've heard anything about it, uh, but, you know, it is a new TV series with Emily Blunt firing a rifle in the Old West. So, I mean, come on, I'll have a review of that next week. Uh, and then just a lot of these franchise things of, of different kinds. So at this point, obviously, The Crown is a franchise, uh, and this is this is... This is the uh, biannual or every other season or whatever uh, reboot of the cast. And so I think there's a lot of curiosity about Amelda Staunton as the new Queen Elizabeth. There's definitely a lot of discussion and speculation about uh, Elizabeth Debicki as um, as Princess Diana, because heaven knows we need more people playing Princess Diana and things. Uh, but there's been a lot of conversation about how very, very tall she appears to be in the trailer. Um Dominic West as Prince Charles, etc. So that's that's a less obvious kind of franchise. Uh, whereas Wednesday is part of the Adams Family world, and that's a that's a franchise. As Leslie mentioned, you can go back and listen to our interview last week with the creators of that. Willow is definitely playing to a a certain millennial slash uh, younger Gen X sweet spot, um, and definitely. I loved Willow. Were you were you a Willow fan as a as a as a wee Leslie? I remember watching the movie. I wouldn't describe myself as a Willow fan. But oh, I, I re remember the movie at the time. I was very excited about it because it was, you know, it, when I was young, there were certain fantasy movies that were very fun and exciting, and so Willow was one. I was a huge Lady Hawk fan as a kid. Uh, you know, in general, I've I've never been the biggest of fantasy fans, but certainly. There were there were some fantasy movies that struck a chord when I was younger. Willow was one of them. I'll be very curious to check that out to see if there's any kind of residual nostalgia that I don't remember existed. I am 100% positive I have no residual nostalgia for the Santa Claus. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and if you are curious what anyone's reaction to that is, uh, Angie will have our review of it because she's at least watched all the movies. I am aware that there have been several movies. I definitely watched the first one. I will, I don't want to say there's no chance I'm going to watch the series, but there's just too much other stuff. Uh, but, you know, sort of trying to make franchises out of things that don't necessarily make sense as franchises. You know, Mosquito Coast second season. I'll talk about that a little bit more in, in Critics Corner. Dangerous Liaisons as a, fan, as a franchise title kind of amuses me conceptually. Uh, and then Criminal Minds, because, you know, we, you, you thought we'd finally gotten into a world without Criminal Minds. And ha ha, you were wrong. No, there are still no, Paramount Plus is really excited about this one because they had sold that show to ABC originally. 
And now they actually own it and actually can use that to to help boost the library on the streamers. And it doesn't it doesn't surprise me because I know that Criminal Minds has been an extremely in in addition to obviously having been a blockbuster series that was completely unable to spawn uh, spinoffs. They made several attempts and mostly they fell flat on their faces, which is a little odd given the success that CBS has had with so many franchised things. It, it makes no inherent sense that we've gotten as many NCISs, CSIs, FBIs, etc. as we did, and yet somehow the Criminal Minds spinoffs all tanked. I mean, they were also awful, particularly Beyond Borders, one of one of the worst shows I've ever watched. Uh, but still, uh, yeah, a little, little surprising that that one didn't spawn 15 different spinoffs that were equally successful. I have no doubt this will be successful because, you know, it's a thing that people want. Uh, in terms of things people don't necessarily want, is this exactly the right moment for Amazon to be excited about having a new James Corden show? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, timing is everything. That would be mammals. This is not exactly the moment at which anyone necessarily will be excited to have James Corden promoting a new James Corden show. Uh, so I don't know. Um, going back again to franchises and not necessarily knowing what their value is. I know that you are at least initially unconvinced that the Pitch Perfect TV series is capturing the thing that uh, made the movies so exciting and good. No, nope. You know they can't hear you shaking your head, right? Nope. <laughs> I love those Pitch Perfect movies, especially the first one. Absolutely love them. I mean, the I, last one was terrible, but still, they're fun. But what made those movies work was you're rooting, it's a, story about the underdogs, right? And I get it, you know, women in succeeding in a man's world. I will watch stories about women succeeding in a man's world any day of the year. But why do I need to root for Bumper as an underdog character in Berlin? I don't know. I have, I have no answer to that. I, I think... Uh, I don't. The answer is I don't. I think if you want to see a show that's about the women succeeding with a lot of actually the same personality, uh, sex lives of college girls, I would say really has actually probably a, some tonal things in common with, uh, with the things that worked in the early pitch perfect movies. Uh, and it's a show that we both like very much. So yeah, lots of, lots and lots of stuff, lots and lots of stuff with huge fan bases. There are people who love, uh, who love mythic quest to death. Um, I will never not call it, uh, mythic quest. I mean, mystic quest. Whatever it is, whichever one it is, I call it the one it isn't inherently. I believe it's actually Mythic Quest. I will always call it Mystic Quest. Uh, and my apologies. Is that like Mystic Pizza, but in like video game form? It's 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 no better the or worse. Quest for Mystic Pizza. It, mythic is Mystic. That's there. Whatever. It's all the same. It's, well, it's not all the same. But anyway, there's no reason why one is clearly correct and the other one is clearly incorrect, except that one is clearly correct and the other one is clearly incorrect <laughs> so other than that anyway it is a it is i believe the technical mathematical amount of programming uh for november is measured in the shit ton um and yes there will be lots of television to talk about in november up next it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment number four 
Our guest this week is Nicole Leckie, creator and star of the BBC Three, BBC America musical drama Mood, based on her 2019 play Super Ho. Before Mood, which also features uh, Nicole singing several original songs that she co-wrote, Leckie's acting credits included Death in Paradise, Doctors, and Sense8. Welcome to the podcast, Nicole. You are very welcome, Daniel. Thank you. So, from Chewing Gum to Fleabag to a bunch of other shows, there's there's a stage to British TV pipeline that doesn't exist quite so much in the States. When you initially started writing Super Ho as a play, what was your thought process in terms of treating it as a play or at the same time imagining it as a story that you thought that you could use for other mediums down the road? There genuinely was not a thought process in terms of when I initially wrote the play for um, for stage. And actually, when I when I originally first wrote it, like it didn't even have a commission anywhere. So I was purely like just hell bent on writing this play and um, hoping it would get on the stage. I didn't have this like grandiose kind of plan and think, oh, they did this. This could be my trajectory because it's still only a handful of people really like there are so many plays in the UK and in London um so it's definitely not a sure bet um so yeah I really hadn't conceived of it for television um at that point when I wrote the play when the possibility begins to exist though that you can expand it do shows like that do they give you a blueprint of how to expand a 90 minute show into a series, or is it just kind of an inspirational thing? They did it. Therefore I can do that. I mean, mine was definitely like having the play was definitely a blueprint in terms of it meant I could hold up this thing and kind of go, this is the vision. This is what I want to do. This is the narrative. This is the story. I don't want to be forced to change it in any way or kind of, you know, shy away from certain topics. Um, because, you know, the play was pretty bold. um, And I was like, I want music in the TV show. That's what I want to do. And I would just keep going, it was in the play, it was in the play. (laughs) So this is what we're doing, guys, stick stick to the plan. Um, So it's definitely helpful when adapting, for sure, rather than, you know, something that's completely original without any IP. But are you able to look to something like a chewing gum or like a flea bag as sort of how to do it? To some degree, at least. I mean, the fact that it's been done, yes, but structurally, mood is so different because of all of the music. Um, I couldn't kind of watch it and be like, oh, you know, this is how Chewing Gum was written and this is then what she did on TV because there were such different experiences, also such a different time. And I think the biggest challenge for me was like, how do you have music in a TV show that's not like a comedy, it's a drama with comedy, you know? Um, so that, that I think, was the biggest challenge. You know, when did the BBC become involved and what was your initial sense of which aspects of the story and the character resonated with the programmers there? They got involved really early, actually, before the play even had a full run at the Royal Court Theatre. It already had a script commission, um, I think I managed to, um, like my agent was sending it out basically the, the, um, the play and it got picked up pretty quickly by a production company and they got it to the BBC and they read it and 
around a similar time, I think I got a script commission for a pilot episode and then it got commissioned to be in a theatre. Um, so that's kind of how the BBC got involved and, and you know, how, how it got to, to be made eventually. But they, I think they had just never really had a character like Sasha on television and really wanted to follow this trajectory. I think there was a lot of noise in the air in terms of what I wanted to speak about thematically in the TV show as well. And and what were some of those things that you said early on in, in those meetings within conversations with the BBC about these are the topics that are in the play? This is how we have to keep these. Was there anything that they said that they were a little nervous about, anything that they wanted to shy away from or anything that you had to fight for to keep? Not really with the BBC, to, to be honest. Um, it, it was always just more about like how things are handled in terms of the sex work and, and for me kind of putting it out there, it not feeling like it was going to be exploitative in any way or it was going to be too judgmental, um, you know, and be very tropey of how sex work is kind of displayed. Uh, typically, I think, in, in lots of, um, well, media we see. Um, so there wasn't anything, to be honest, it was always about the scale and the ambition and, and how could we, like, really pull off, like, with, with you know, with the budget. I think it's always a kind of budgetary thing. But... Um, they definitely were behind the story. Um, yeah. When it comes to the musical elements, you, you mentioned that that was sort of a thing that people had to get their minds around. Were there examples that you pointed to as as being the examples of how this could work? Or or did you feel as if you were doing something that was really out of outside the box? There wasn't a lot of examples. I had a quite a... I don't know if you've ever, well, you might have seen The Singing Detective. Of course. Um, so that was something that I kind of would speak about, just in the sense, I mean, the story is totally different. But um, in that, they kind of weave song and narrative. And it's like not a comedy, but I mean, it made me laugh when I watched it. I don't know if, you know, lots, it's not quite politically correct anymore, but um, it, it did make me laugh. And that was something I kind of used to sort of go, oh, this thing was done, I think, I don't know if it was the 70s, it was actually. The, yeah, and and also, like does that 70s? scare, does Dennis Potter scare people these days when you use him as a point of reference, oh, or is someone actually attracted by that still? I think people were attracted by, I think people were like, oh, that's a kind of, we didn't expect her to maybe say that. Um, but I felt like the what has been done was mainly in the space of comedy or um, like how the action would kind of, you'd have a musical number and then and you would stop for that musical number and then you would kind of go back to the kind of the bit. Um, and I didn't want to do that. I was like, no, it's very much like in our head and it kind of moves the story along. But I did keep saying, but it's not a musical. It's not a musical. It's got music, but it's not, you know, this sort of, I could see people looking at me like, what is she trying to create? What's she, what she doing this watery thing we can't quite hold on to? Um, and I think it was when I finally got in the studio and I started making music and you could, you know, read the script and listen to the music that people went, oh, okay, we can. Um, so to be fair to them, they put a lot of trust in me, a lot of faith in me without, um, you know, having the full thing uh, very early on. What did you have as evidence of what the songs were going to sound like, of how that would work? Did, you know, because if you hadn't been in the studio yet, what was your I first concept? Mind, 
Well, I had the play and I had oh, sung sure. in the play. So um, they came to see the play, actually, the BBC. So, you know, I had the script commission. Then I went to put the play on. And during that time they came, they watched it. And I think then they're a bit more like, ah, okay. So these are the songs. This is what she's, this is what she's doing. Um, at that point, they just were really keen on the story, I think. And, you know, hopefully my writing. So that was good. <laughs> um, but I think they, yeah, once they saw that, I think they're a bit clearer on um, just like what it could be, you know. And, and who at the BBC made the call that the series couldn't be called Super Ho and, and where did Mood come from as a title? Well, they didn't actually. And the BBC were, were really behind the name Super Ho, it has to be said. Um, they really were. I think it was when it was picked up internationally and kind of co-produced that it was felt like around the world the name Super Ho may not resonate around the world um and that's when we kind of were like okay it feels very different to superho in lots of ways maybe it should have its own kind of identity but i will say i love the name superho <laughs> i will say that <sighs> so then where did mood come from and how and what were other contenders oh my goodness i was gonna call it grapefruit for a hot minute I was going to call it grapefruit, right? And I was um, really going down that road for a while and I couldn't even really explain why I wanted to call it grapefruit. I just really liked the word and I was like, well, maybe that's not not the name. Um, and mood came from, you know, people use it like it's a mood or it's not a mood, you know, as in like whether it's a vibe or not. So kind of it was something I guess I would say, um, but also the songs across the um, across the series, you know, they're very different in terms of the genre as you kind of move through the narrative. And um, it, it goes by her mood. It goes by what Sasha thinks and feels and how she's trying to fully communicate and articulate herself. So mood was a really early contender and I it just kept coming back. I kind of had to go through about 500 names to come back to mood to be like, yes, okay, mood. And, you know, now that you've lived with this character of Sasha for so long, um, and obviously in, in, in these very different forms on stage and, and for the series, but has she taken on more aspects of your personality or your voice, or has she become more of her own fictional, fictional character? Oh, I think more of her own fictional character, I guess. Um, because the similarities, like, we're both, you know, it's set in East London. I grew up in East London. So did she, you know, she's a singer, I sing. So definitely in terms of, but it's almost like I feel like with Sasha, we split paths. Like, you know, I went this way and she went maybe like a different version of myself could have gone down a different road. Um, so I kind of based her more on people I kind of grew up with, people I felt like were talented and yet just couldn't get it going, you know, and I would always see them and, and sort of feel like, how has this like not happened for you, whether it was music or acting or what kind of is holding you back, you know, mentally or, you know, economically, whatever it was. So, yeah, I think she's taken on her own um yeah, she's got her own thing going on. 
do you have that kind of sliding doors moment in your past where where you look at it and you and you see where things might have forked in a different direction for you? Like so many, I think. I mean, you know, I didn't um I didn't I don't come from money, I don't come from any kind of family connections to the industry. I'm the only kind of creative in the family. Um so I will, was always kind of very hand to mouth, you know, I was always um but there was nothing else I wanted to do. I always wanted to write. I wanted to produce, act. Um, so I kind of had such a conviction, I guess. It 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 kind of had to work out. Um, so, but yeah, I, th- I think there were there were moments where I was just like, like I ended up in the housing office. There's a scene in episode two um, where Sasha is signing on. She's in the. I don't think you guys call it the Dole office out here. Welfare, welfare office or you call it welfare. Yeah. so I had to go to the welfare office I broke my hand had no cash and um I wrote that kind of scene that moment into um mood where um it's like a musical sequence it's probably one of my favorites um in the entire series actually where it's called life is shit and it's about how shit fucking life is. <laughs> um, and But it's this really happy scar, cockney, like everyone in the centre singing. And um, yeah, so there, there are those kind of sliding moments where I think you either have to dig deeper and kind of get yourself out of it and try not to be um, waylaid by where you think you should be going. And um, unfortunately, Sasha in that moment doesn't quite get herself out, you know. You've talked about the OnlyFans creators who you've spoken with as part of the writing process. When did those conversations take place? And and how would you define the way that they shaped your initial preference of that as a as a career path and the people who utilize it? Um, really early on, actually. Um, when I was writing the play, it wasn't OnlyFans though, it was actually um Snapchat. Um people were privatizing their accounts on Snapchat, and then you could, you know send them a kind of uh, send them money and then they would give you access to their private accounts. So that's how they were like monetizing at the time. Um, so I spoke to women there and then I think over lockdown when OnlyFans kind of really expanded uh, and I moved away from cam work, that's when I spoke to women. And I think my opinion was always shifting. Um, it really depends on or depended on who who I spoke to. You know, whether I was like, yes, girl, get it. Like, you know, you're, you know what's going on. I really felt like, yeah, you've got your head on your shoulders. This is really right for you. And then other times I would speak to women and and I would, sometimes I'd be in tears, like after I would leave and I would feel like, oh, I just want to like take this person somewhere. Like, I just want them to do something else. You know, they clearly want to be doing something else um but are making it work and um so my opinion kept changing which I think you'll see in the series like I'm not saying anything is good or bad I think it's very like situational and about choice like do you have agency and choice to make a decision whether you want to do sex work or not you know I think that's a good point that you make about about how the quarantine impacted the perception of OnlyFans. And partially at the time, that was that OnlyFans made the determination that they were going to, at least briefly, they said that they were going to move away from the sexual side of it. And that, of course, led to a great uproar 
I mean, that was that was never even like that was never going to work. Like I remember that I was just like, what? How quickly they backtracked when you know it was built on sex workers. That's how they made all their money. So it was just like you know such a slap in the face. But obviously they did a U turn. But how did writing this and having experienced that shift in the perception, the the perception of this thing that you were tackling, how do you think that did make the world and the backdrop of the series different from the version of sex work that was in the play? Um, well, yeah, I guess it, it just it moved on, you know, um, in the play, it's cam work, um, you know, even sort of more like phone sex cam work. Um, and it is about sort of Carly being an influencer in the play, but maybe not in the same way um, as in being so um, kind of successful and public with it. And and the more women I spoke to, especially during lockdown, and, you know, I spoke to a woman who was making £60,000 a month. Um, yeah, she was raking in the cash. She really was. And she had a huge following on all the different, various social media sites and so I think I leaned into that a little bit more with the character of Carly and the allure of that for for Sasha and also not just the monetary gain but also the you know the societal like the impact on her is like getting more followers getting more known online and actually what that also meant so not purely just the financial aspect. When it comes to the descent of the character, that's inevitably the way that things are going to go for a while. You you can tell that, as you say, it's not a comedy, so so things mm-hmm. are going to get dramatic. But there oh, were yeah. se- <laughs> there were several points I was relieved that, however much she was falling, there seemed to be a level of ruin that you didn't want to go. How did you do the math in your head of how much misery you wanted to inflict on Sasha on yourself here? Mm, I mean, it gets pretty miserable. Um, I think the thing is when you're like um, working class and you have to kind of hustle and figure it out, you, I think you're, you're able to pivot and you're able to withstand unfortunately like a lot of trauma or a lot of things happening to you and kind of being like right I need to survive I need to do something else so I think she's a fighter so can kind of get herself out of situations until she can't um and yeah that was kind of the thing things keep kind of happening to her and she's kind of ducking and diving and figuring things out and um because I think that's that's kind of what you do you're quite scrappy um and she's you know, savvy to an extent. So I think that's what it was about, really, kind of having an authentic character who just kind of won't be put down um, despite things happening around her. I mean, how much did you worry about the character being likable? Because, you know, watching the the pilot episode, I was just like, wow. I I just, I was like, I I couldn't, (laughs) I wanted to connect with her so bad because, you know, you're feeling for her in, in the beginning, but then you're just like, she's, you just see her making bad decision after bad decision after bad decision yes well i i didn't really worry about it did execs or people worry about it yes um i feel like despite her being you know quite vile in lots of moments you 
you can, I think you want to stay with her and you want to figure out like, why is she like this? Like, what's her history? Like, where is she going to go with this attitude? Like, how far can this attitude kind of take her across like a series? Um, And she does change a lot. But I think where you meet her, she's, she's fed up, you know, she's fed up, she's frustrated with her life. And the more I softened her, just the less authentic I found it to be. And she's very much based on people, you know, who are from the area I'm from in London. And they don't take bullshit. They don't really suffer fools. And for her to be a little bit nicer, in a way, I was like, that's not the person I see at the bus stop shouting on the phone at somebody. You know, that's not, I want that person in the show. And that's who I want to be like, spend some time with and and just be like well if you don't like her you might be interested by her were were there notes though that you got in the writing process where people tried pushing you in one direction where you had to push back yeah definitely um there's a line that i say in the play because you know theater is a lot more um you can kind of do a bit more maybe with less voices and um when she says she's gonna kick her little sister in the cunt Now, that was a real contentious point. I remember in the script, it was a contentious point. I remember in the edit, it really felt a bit like, which side do you um, fall down on? The side where you're happy for her to call her little sister a cunt or threaten to kick her? Or are you like on the side that's just like, that's terrible. And I think we weighed it up and I was just like, she would say it, you know, she would say it. And um we're going to say it. That's going to happen. Yeah, it felt like a very defining moment of like, this is what this show is, in case you're not sure. <laughs> yes. How conscious are you of how differently that plays to maybe an American audience where we do not throw around cunt as easily as I've the heard, Brits do? <laughs> yes, I have heard this. Um, I guess I'm just excited to see you really, or hear a response because I can only... I think when you're creating work, you just have to create, like, what is authentic to this situation? And I don't think you can think too much, like, how much is it going to play to audiences necessarily or or try to, like, second-guess things. Um, I think audiences respond to just, like, real work and real characters and three-dimensional characters. So, yeah, hopefully good. (laughs) Uh, I, I do want to talk about the music because right off the bat, the very, very first song that that is featured in this series, I pulled out my phone and I was like, who sings the song? Give me the song. I want it. I want it. I want it. Give it to me now. I want to play it on repeat for the rest of the day. Like, it is so good. Can we talk a little bit about how you and your musical collaborators approached the way that you wanted Sasha to be and how you wanted the audience to know she had this talent inside her? Yeah, I think um, it was just so important that she actually could be a singer, you know. Um, If she, I think it just would fall down if you were like, actually, um, we don't really think she could be a recording artist. We don't, you know, think she's got what it takes. So it was figuring out um, how to kind of deal with notes and deal with like script, the scripting process And then when you get notes which change it, it means that the songs then don't fit into that episode because so you're constantly rewriting songs. So I had this um, process, I guess, where it was, um, I called them placeholder songs, 
where I would write a kind of narrative, have an idea for a song. But once we got to a really good point, I would then get in the studio and, and kind of work on those. And I worked with um, a producer called KZ Did It. And we were just always sending each other like voice notes and I would send him ideas I had and I would go, I really want to do a ballad in episode four. That's what I, I really think she needs to confess everything and we just go full ballad. That's what that's what I really want to do. And I want to make people cry and I, I want her to really be honest for the first time. Um, so that was kind of the process. It was a very, um, it was so much fun. I will say that. Like just being in the studio and being quite free from a like, getting it right or wrong um, in music is, is quite different. I, you know, people can give you as many notes on a song as they can on a script. Um, so, yeah, it was it was probably my most enjoyable part of the process. And then what were the conversations about how yes. the soundtrack could... Leslie got made. <laughs> <laughs> got the soundtrack. Thank you, Leslie. Love that. So what were the conversations about how the music could then be used as a as a hook to promote the show? Because obviously that's a whole different stream that allows the show to get out there. Yeah, I mean, the conversations really started kind of pre-edit. I think that's when people were realizing, oh, hang on, we've got like a whole soundtrack and um, people really want to know where the songs are and where they can get the songs. And it was something that when I did the play... I remember we hadn't recorded the songs and I had mentioned it, but you know, the resources in theater are a bit more limited, but people would come up to me afterwards in, in the bar and be like, Oh, where can I get the finale that you sung? And I'd be like, Oh, it's not, it's not actually anywhere. You know, it's, you can't actually get it. So I was, it was really important to me that this time we, we, you know, we didn't miss that moment for an audience. I love musicals, music. I would want to, um, I would want to listen to music from a TV show that I loved. That is something I would really want to do and connect with it further. So we kind of approached record labels and said, you know, we've got a bunch of songs and we want to make it available. And, and that was that was how we did it, actually. Um, so we've gone through a record label to release the soundtrack. And the show... You guys create your own alternative to OnlyFans. It's it's daily fans, I believe. It's so different, Daniel. <laughs> daily fans and OnlyFans, they're just so different. They're not connected at all. <laughs> not at all. No similarity. <laughs> Don't <laughs> At the same time, you mention, definitely characters mention Instagram, but I think there's also a different site that they use what were the considerations of what you actually could and couldn't say about the real versions of these social networking sites? Well, there's lots of considerations. And that's something that I learned during this process, it being my first show. I sort of thought you could just say anything about anybody, any company. Um, and you cannot, that you cannot do. So for me, it was like, Either we have all or we have none. I just felt like it was a really messy ground to get into where, you know, you have an Instagram, but then you don't have this. And you and so I kind of made the decision to, I felt like I hadn't really remarked on it. Like when I watch TV shows, I don't ever really notice like, oh, are they using a real WhatsApp or is it like whatever the name is? I kind of just go with it. So I think that was the aim rather than get into like muddy waters, just 
go for something that all across the board for everything kind of branding wise at least in terms of social media or, or messaging and and that's kind of what we did and i'm sure many people will have a similar reaction but i watched this and my immediate thing was okay let's see let's go see what nicole's actually like on social media and you're <laughs> and you are distinctly tamer and more restrained on social media do you have do you have skeletons in your social media closet that people just won't be able to find or have you always been more demure on social media um well, I love the word demure. I'm going to go around telling people I, I'm a demure woman on social media. Um, well, to be honest, I had a private account. I was I was like private, had, you know, flung up a couple photos and just, you know, did my enjoyment on, you know, social media. But then I, I, I essentially created a new account, you know, and um, just, yeah, I guess now I use it in a different way as to when it was like private, just me and my friends on there. And um, I have a love-hate relationship with social media anyway. So it's always going to be um, like an interesting thing. I think sometimes it can take up so much time, but equally like I love watching funny videos on there and I love seeing what my friends are doing on there. So I'm just a total ball of like contradiction with social media. <laughs> In terms of, of mood, I mean, this obviously tells a complete story in six episodes, but it is one in theory that does have room to expand. Do you think that you're done with with Sasha's story or is there a second oh. season here? Um, I mean, you are right, Leslie. There is scope. I think, what can I say? I think we'll just have to see like where it kind of goes and um, what I kind of want to do for the next. 24 months or so with my time. Uh, so what's next for you then? Hmm, more TV, more film. Um, I'm writing a feature at the moment um, that I'm going to direct. That's very exciting. And I'm in the studio making music. Um, just kind of more creating. I really enjoyed exec producing on the show. And that is something that... Um, I want to do more of as well and work with other creatives. Well, the show is is very much about showcasing. I mean, obviously, the play was also about showcasing these different aspects of things that you can do, you know, writing, singing, acting, etc. What sense have you gotten of where you've gotten the most personal traction out of this off of the You know, how are people looking at you now? Hmm. Well, I guess just kind of as a showrunner creative um it really depends who is talking to me in terms of like which industry they're from or whether they're like you know I've got an idea and I really need a writer and I'd, I'd you know come in and talk about this idea or also as an actress um and with casting directors and so I'm not sure because I guess my team keeps me in the loop with everything at the moment and who I should be speaking with so yeah I don't I don't know really I'll be honest I might need to ask more people what do you see me as because I don't know I'm I am kind of doing it all and um I do enjoy writing and um acting and like I say the new frontier for me was exact producing I'd never um exact produced a show before and that was the kind of newest string to my bow. I, I want to go back quickly to the to the treatment of sex work here. 
because you had the conversations beforehand. You you talked to the people who had lived in this world. I, I'm curious if you've had subsequent conversations after people have seen it and people have given their impressions of how they were reflected within the series and what they do. Yeah, I have, uh, which has been really great, actually. And I also stayed in contact throughout the process um, because you do kind of form bonds with people you've spoken to, really very intimate details of their life. And it's not like I would just speak to somebody once. Um, you know, we would talk and they'd be like, you know, hit me up if you've got any other questions. So I would. And, um, you know, I formed relationships with a few women Um friendships I would say you know that have that have reached out to me since and have been really instrumental in like showing the show to their friends and you know who are other sex workers and me hearing about the debate and the kind of conversation that they've had around the show I love that honestly like I think it's so so important to kind of show this world and then you know the people I'm speaking about have an opinion on it um so that that's that's been really great so far well what has the feedback been like in terms of too judgmental not judgmental enough portraying it as too empowering portraying it as not empowering enough what what kind of mixtures of responses have you gotten along those lines well i haven't really been across like the noise i suppose like i don't genuinely don't read reviews i don't you know kind of it's only people that are going to come up and speak to me and I think it depends who, it depends on the type of person who is watching it as into like what they want to take from the show. Because people will always read into what they want to. So like if anything negative happens in the show to do with sex work, that kind of confirms their, you know, vitriol in a way of like, well, this is what happens when you do sex work. And equally, if you're very, you know, pro-sex work, the minute Sasha starts making money and is, kind of doing well um there's also a different perspective there so I don't think the show is judgmental and I and I also don't think it's um teeing it up as like this is gonna you know be a great great decision for you I think it shows the the parity you know and, and shows the complications so I hope that's what most people take away from it but um that was my aim anyway, to kind of just show it in its warts and all situation. This is what the show is about. This is what can happen if you do X, Y, Z. It's it's not like a morality tale, but it's very much like this This is just the reality. And these, there were very similar and common themes that kept coming up with the, the women I was speaking to. There was a lot of commonality in their situations. This this was something I was sort of wondering watching it. And it's obviously, it's not the story. And this is not me saying... Where are the men in this story? I, I want to make that clear because that's not what this story is. But in the back of your mind, what is your perspective on the men who are in the background of this story? Should we be looking at them as as gross, as disturbing, as simply part of the economy? You know, is there a part in the back of your mind where you're thinking about that side of things? Mm. Yes. And, and I'll be honest, originally when, how the idea even came about, I was going to go down that road of um, these men created these websites where they were, you know, shaming these young women and they were catching them out on Instagram and or wherever and going, you know, getting them to reveal they were secretly sex workers. And at first I thought, who are these men? And I was going to tell a sort of story about these kinds of men. And then I went, hang on a minute, this story is about, I want to know who these women are who are being kind of exposed 
And I guess my perception on the men involved is like, if it's a mutually transactional service where both parties are consenting and happy and, you know, with the situation, I don't really have a judgmental outlook on it in terms of for the women. Um, But I do think there is a power dynamic that can't be shifted and a financial dynamic in terms of men earning more money and, you know, this being an industry where women make the most money instead of men and compared to so many other industries. So I maybe have low-key shade for the men that are involved. No, very low-key shade. I'm not like an all-men-are-trash kind of person, but um, I do have low-key shade. And also the men who you know, earn so much money and kind of what they expect and, you know, engaging with sex workers and because of the money, making them do things that they know they don't want to do. But in a few of the um, stories of the women I've met, some of them have these beautiful kind of relationships with some of their regular clients and um, they go around their house, they cook a dinner, they watch some TV and they go home. They don't even do anything sexual. Um, And actually it's really out of born out of loneliness and you know my heart doesn't break for those men but I do go "Mm, okay that's a little sad you know that's a bit sad soz for you you know and we do like to wrap these interviews with the same question what have you been watching lately and enjoying what have I been watching okay I was super late to the party with um White Lotus because it's coming for season two right so I watched that and I just died. I thought it was so, so funny. Um, yeah, I, I, I truly loved it. And Severance, I also watched Severance, which I thought was like um, so uh, disturbing and like complicated and, um, but in like a very brilliant nuanced kind of way. Um, and I kept going back for more and, and, and that's what I've been watching. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, guys. Cheers. Mood premieres Sunday, November 6th on BBC America and AMC. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, Blockbuster on Netflix, The Mosquito Coast Season 2 on Apple, NBC has Lopez vs. Lopez, Hulu has God Forbid, Showtime has Spectre, you just heard our interview about mood. And then you've got HBO's Say Hey, Willie Mays documentary. Dan, what you got? Lots and lots of stuff. And some of it is decent. I, I have reservations about many of the things premiering this week. Uh, sort of going chronological, I checked out God Forbid, uh, which is Billy Corbin's look at the scandal that kind of brought down the Falwell empire, Jerry Falwell Jr., etc., the sex scandal involving his wife and uh, the pool boy at the Fontainebleau in Miami. And it also brings in such bigger picture names as Donald Trump and Michael Cohen, etc., etc. Billy Corden is Corbin is uh, he's he's kind of a chronicler of Miami. He did a couple really fun 30 for 30s. He's done a bunch of drug related uh, and Miami centric documentaries. And this feels a lot like them. The thing I found interesting about it, uh, in addition to it being 
actually a respectable feature length and not attempting to be a three episode or a four episode documentary. I appreciate that. Thank you to all the people at Hulu for having uh, time based restraint. It starts off as this kind of tawdry thing. It it feels for probably like the first 45 minutes or so, like a really, really extended uh, penthouse forum letter. I I can't believe this happened to me. I I met one of the most one of the sons of the most famous televangelists in the world, and he wanted to jack off in the corner of the room while I had sex with his wife. Man, let me tell you the the juicy and somewhat gross details. And for a while, it kind of steers into that tawdriness, and I I was getting fatigued with it until exactly the moment at which it says, okay, here is why you should maybe be disturbed by the tawdriness, and here's where it fits into a bigger picture perspective of the power of the evangelical movement in the United States politically, uh, the power of the moral majority, the power of the of the Christian right in terms of politics, which is not in any way a criticism of Christianity. It's a criticism of the intermingling of church and state in this situation in which some of these people have the ability to be actual kingmakers. You know, did did Jerry Falwell's endorsement help get Donald Trump elected president? Well, it didn't hurt. It was a it was a major endorsement, allowed him to get 81% of the evangelical vote in 2016, despite all of his uh, personal peccadilloes and and failings that do not align with what would Jesus do style bracelets. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of building anger about it. You know, it's it's the documentary begins silly, it begins tawdry, and then it says, okay, you think that this is a ridiculous thing. You think that this is an embarrassing, prurient thing that we're fixating on. But now take a step back and realize the influence and power that this gross, embarrassing man, this is Jerry Falwell Jr. I'm talking about here, that he had on a national scene. How did that happen? How did we get here? What does it mean? And I think that the second half of the documentary its anger and its righteous anger, I think, make it very interesting and and worthy of consideration. So I, I was kind of, after about 30 minutes, like, do I really need to keep going with this? I, I don't need another story about ha ha ha, they were sneaking around, or he's sending text messages to this ridiculous man's somewhat ridiculous wife, etc. But then it really does hit a point that I thought was was fairly interesting and worthwhile. And once again, it's it's only an hour and 40 minutes. Uh, they did not overfill it, which I appreciate. Uh, continuing with things that have already premiered, you can watch all of Blockbuster on, on Netflix. And it has, of course, been mentioned by absolutely everybody that it's somewhere between weird and gross that Netflix is making a series about a very large company that they put out of business. And also somewhat strange and gross that somehow Blockbuster, which put so many darned smaller actual family-run video stores and whatnot out of business itself, is being portrayed here as being the alter ultimate underdog. So th there, there are all of these levels on which you watch the show and go, hmm, 
<laughs> do they really expect me to be watching this and thinking that blockbuster video was some sort of halcyon haven for cinema lovers as opposed to a place that didn't have a very wide selection of classic movies uh, that probably put better video stores in your particular town, city, whatever, out of business. But somehow, maybe weirdly in retrospect, we get nostalgic for it. I, it <laughs> There are a lot of disconnects. And then you can start going with, and this was something that I was discussing with a couple friends on Twitter today, including Angie, Linda Holmes, a few other people, the entire premise of the show is kind of rooted in the idea that in some strange alternate dimension, uh, Melissa Fumero, Randall Park, and J.B. Smoove could have been actual peers slash contemporaries, uh, which if you actually go and look at their age or actually watch them makes no sense whatsoever. Now, all of this has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not Blockbuster is a particularly good show, but the fact that I'm leading with all of this and babbling with all of this should let you know exactly how memorable the actual show that it is happens to be. Blockbuster is a show with a great cast and with a perfectly reasonable workplace setting. Uh, could it have been any old video store and perhaps not had the the background ickiness of Blockbuster. Sure, but, you know, added layers of irony and all of that. It's it's just not a very good show, unfortunately. What it is, is it feels like a... It feels like a Fox or NBC-style single-cam workplace comedy where you would watch the first season and you would go, the elements are all in place, I wish it was actually funny, and then you'd go, will it eventually get there so sometimes they do and often they do so for every time you get a sh a workplace comedy of this type like a brooklyn 99 that actually comes out and is working initially and is successful initially nine 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 you you get you know if you're lucky you get a show like superstore which was definitely a show that in its first handful of episodes was hit and miss, but you'd go, okay, it's a, it's a great premise. It's a great background. It's a great cast. Maybe it will get better. And Superstore absolutely did. Um, so many shows, of course, don't. And I would say that Superstore is not as good initially, even as the kind of fitful early episodes of something like Superstore. So I, I chuckled, but everything in the show needed to be tightened up it, it is just not funny enough it, there there are strange gaps in in character-based logic that that confused me there there was just no point at which i ever felt that the humor was escalating and that the show was finding its voice consistently uh on the other hand i don't think it's in any way painfully bad it's i would say it's mostly just forgettably bad it's mostly just disposably bad and even bad is probably an overstatement it's it's okay it's it's mediocre it's it's largely painless i watched i think 8 of the 10 episodes and because angie was reviewing it for an actual formal review, I didn't feel the need to keep watching it. On the other hand, it was on in the background. It was good for an occasional chuckle. Uh, Randall Park is always funny. I think Melissa Fumero is really funny. I don't think it's a very good use of J.B. Smoove at all. I think J.B. Smoove is capable of being as funny as any person on television. 
He's also sometimes capable of being fairly annoying. This is actually neither of those two things. I, I would say it's just like it's a kind of generic part. There is no reason to have someone like J.B. Smoove here. Um, and there were there was a lot of that. It's so. Yeah, that's 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 blockbuster. I have, you know, even if you want to dwell on the weirdness of all of the backdrop stuff, whatever <laughs> is sort of where I end up on it. It, it, you know, it's it's better than Lopez versus Lopez, which is the actual genuine mediocre broadcast show this week and actually airing on NBC. And it uh, is it's a family multicam with George Lopez and his daughter Mayan. And it's a lot of very, very, very cheap, very, very broad generational comedy shtick. She's on TikTok all the time. She's on Instagram. He doesn't even know what TikTok and Instagram are. Um, okay, in some situation, George Lopez is going to uh, is going to twerk. And yes, at some point, George Lopez does indeed twerk. Uh, on the other hand, the co-creator of the show, along with the two Lopez's. Um, you know, it's it's not just exclusively their show. And the uh, the co-creator is a veteran of that would be Debbie Wolf, incidentally, uh, is a veteran of One Day at a Time, a veteran of the Connors. And those are sort of examples of what the show is kind of going for. So it's uh, it wants to be somewhat topical. It wants to talk about mental illness, mental health. And I appreciated those aspects of it. Uh, it's just not a, a very funny show in any way, shape, or form. Uh, so yes. So continuing along, you just heard our interview with uh, with Nicole Leckie of Mood on BBC America. And I think Mood is is most particularly a showcase for her. I think I think she's really just great. And you could hear from the interview, she's got a very good head on her shoulders. I think that a lot of the show might have played a tiny bit more freshly if uh, if Issa Rae's rap shit hadn't just come out. I think there are a lot of similarities in the way that they treat social media and the way they treat music business and the way they treat the way social media and sex work can sometimes intersect. So I think that takes away a lot of the, the freshness. Uh, but again, I think Nicole is a very original voice. I think that she's a very solid performer, and this is a good vehicle for her. And as you may have heard Leslie enthuse, uh, this, the songs are really, really good. The songs are, are really catchy. There are three or four or five originals that are that are littered throughout that really just feel like solid hits. You know, they yeah, feel like... Download yeah. the soundtrack. Trust me. Yeah, but I, th I think the show's worth watching. It's also only six episodes. They are not long episodes. They're all between forty-five and fifty minutes, and and I really do. I I am very much looking forward to seeing what uh, Nicole Leckie does next because I think that she has a voice that is not, you know, it's not every voice on television. Um, so yes, continuing. God, there's so much damn TV this week, and I watched so much of it for this podcast. Even if we're not actually reviewing it, like. No one needs a review of season two of Mosquito Coast, but I watched four episodes and I watched four episodes mostly because I, I like the movie a ton. I love the Paul Thoreau book. And the first season was just infuriating because it, it was basically a 10 episode pilot <laughs> padded out with plot details from Ozark. 
And if you watch the first season, you're like, okay, it's a family on the run, but I was promised a family on the Mosquito Coast and all of the stuff that's in the book and in the movie. Uh, the se second season does get us some of the places that you want it to go. The, the first episode's really infuriating because it starts off with like an overhead shot of, of the boat on a river that, and you're like, okay, we're, we're about to get to the damn book, to the damn movie. Let's, let's do this. And then the first episode is almost all backstory. The second and third episodes though, actually really do get to, a lot of the stuff that is so interesting about the book, the idea of a, a primitive society of people escaping from modernity uh, for various progressive political reasons, the disconnect between the different members of the family, the increasingly unhinged personality aspects of the character played by Justin Thoreau here. And you get to those. And but then also by the by the third and fourth episodes, you start seeing once again, the show just doesn't know how to tell its story. The show keeps going off on these on these deviations where they're basically it's it's just like filler to keep it going because they don't know what the bigger story is. It's it's really frustrating. And it's really frustrating because there are so many good aspects to the show, whether it's Justin Thoreau whether it's uh, Melissa George, who I think is very, very good. I think these first couple episodes are, are a great vehicle for, Lo uh, for Logan Polish and uh, Gabriel Bateman, who play the two kids. I think that there are scenes with Ian Hart as the kind of crazy American assassin who's on their trail. I think he is a, he is a blast to watch. But if you thought, okay, after these after the first season, will the show lock into being what it is? Uh, the answer to that question is no. Continuing along, Spectre on Showtime is a four-hour documentary series uh, that probably could have been two. It looks at Phil Spector, his musical influences, and, oh boy, I have a whole lot about his murder trial. Um, and it's what Spectre did for me is it confirmed how great W. Kamau Bell's documentary about Bill Cosby was because there it's a very similar conceit of how do we separate the art from the artist how do we discuss the art when the artist has done horrible things what is what is the full picture what is the full context of this story wherein we don't need to say we never mentioned Phil Spector in the wall of sound again you know we we don't we don't acknowledge his influence while at the same time he was convicted of murder and and died while still imprisoned, where do we find the middle ground? It, it's really kind of messy. Um, and then last but not least, and this one really might be more of a recommendation for uh, Leslie than anybody else, uh, Nelson George's HBO documentary, Say Hey Willie Mays, is is just really good. It's it's just really solid. And, you know, Willie Mays is, is 91 years old. He is still with us. And this is a hour and 40 minute documentary that not entirely, but largely gives Willie Mays the chance to to talk. And and it's just a, a treasure to have any of these opportunities to listen to Willie Mays tell stories, uh, to see a lot of his teammates from various Giants teams going back over the years, uh, particularly the uh, Latino players who, who sort of heavily populated those Giants teams at that time, uh, Orlando Cepeda, Juan Marichal, at all, 
lots of them are there. Lots of them are telling great stories. There, there's a ton of Barry Bonds. So if you are opposed to Barry Bonds, what, you thought a story about Barry Bonds's uh, uh, Godfather wasn't going to feature a lot of Barry Bonds. It features a lot of Barry Bonds, um, and it's it's just really it's just really good, and it's it's really solid. It does a good job of contextualizing him in his moment of sort of examining what his politics were in that particular moment, and whether or not he was progressive enough, whether he did what he needed to do to whatever to advance the cause of black players in baseball or of African-Americans in society and kind of examines things like, you know, early controversies involving his attempting to buy a house in San Francisco. So you've got former mayor Willie Brown talking about that. Uh, lots of good stuff. Definitely stick around if you watch it uh, for the credits. The credits include a lot of off-the-cuff, behind-the-scenes interview footage with Nelson George and Willie Mays, including Willie Mays talking about his uh, meetings with Babe Ruth. There's there's just a lot of stuff where if you are a baseball fan, it's a, a real treasure just to have these interviews and to have these moments. And uh, I liked it very much in that respect. And yeah, that's that's a, a lot of a lot of TV. Uh, and and to do the the quick recap for whatever good it, it's going to do you, uh, Hulu's God forbid is already out. It is uh, starts off silly and tawdry and trashy, ends up righteously angry. Um, I appreciated the righteous anger. Blockbuster, lots of good elements, mostly just kind of forgettable. It's now on on Netflix. Uh, Mosquito Coast, it has not become the consistent series that you hoped it would be. It still has good people in it, and it still feels really like a, a knockoff of a knockoff of a knockoff of a knockoff, you know, sort of conventional true crime series. Lopez versus Lopez, meh. Spectre, watch the Kamau Bell Cosby documentary but it does exist on Showtime coming out this weekend. Uh, BBC America's Mood. You just heard our interview with Nicole Leckie. Definitely worth checking out. She is one to watch. And Say Hey Willie Mays premieres early next week on HBO. And if you are a baseball fan, it is well worth checking out. <gasps> For more of Dan's weekly recommendations. That's right. He's got more. Kids. There's no more. Be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporters. Now see this newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporters TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. We're always happy to chat with you guys on Twitter. Uh, Leslie already mentioned she's at Snoodit with two O's, and I'm at The Fine Print, F-I-E-N. So come on Twitter, let us know what's working, what isn't working, etc. If you have questions for future mailbag segments, and I don't know about needing a mailbag segment for next week, but I think in two weeks, we really might like to have some good questions. So if you got some questions, email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the numeral five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. 